Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year, first weekend in June 2015. We had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to ATXFestival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there, because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to ATXFestival.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I am uh, the co-creator of... No, I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Is a, a podcast about the business and process of writing television. And if there's a show that you love, we have probably talked to one of the creators or writers of it. So go check that out. It's on the Nerdist Network. Um, I am myself I'm also a television writer. Uh, I'm currently working for the Netflix DreamWorks series Puss in Boots. Check it out. Um, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, which is also a podcast on the Nerdist Network. Now you know my credentials. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have... Uh, when I started doing the Nerdist Writers Panel, I had a short list. Well, it started out as a long list of creators I was dying to talk to. Because the reason I started doing it is because it didn't exist. If one of you had made a podcast where you talk to TV creators, I would have just listened to it. But you didn't, so I had to do it. And now look where I am. <laughs> we have fun. Um, this, and, and I got to speak to, over the three, almost four years of doing the writer's panel, I've gotten to speak to all of these creators who were important to me and to television, and influential to me and to television, except for one. That changes this morning. Uh, so I am thrilled to get this opportunity to talk to Marta Kaufman. Please welcome her. Watch your step. <laughs> took her shoes off. Smart. Smart. Very smart. Please. <laughs> Thanks for coming to Austin. You're welcome. Austin's fun. How, yeah, you're having a hell of a time, right? I had barbecue. It was really good. Burped yeah. it up the rest of the night. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about Grace and Frankie. Okay. Which is a terrific show. These guys enjoyed it. Um... I'm sure you have talked about this to death, but where did this come from? How did, how did the show begin? How did you decide this is the show to make the, at this time? Um, it started as a fluke, honestly. I was having lunch with a woman named Marcy Ross, who's the head of um, our, the, the studio that's doing this. I've known her for a while. And she happened to mention at lunch that, that Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin wanted to do TV. I thought she meant together. 
so I called my agent and I said, I hear Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin want to do a TV show together. And she said, I don't know. I'll call you back. 20 minutes later, she called me back and said, they do now. <laughs> um, so that's how we started with Jane and Lily. And then it was a matter of coming up with an idea that is worthy of actors of, of their level. And I was sitting in the car. Hannah, will you stand up, please? I'm going to embarrass you. Han that's Hannah K.S. See her? She is my um, creative executive. She's also my daughter, but here's why she's my creative executive. Because she's the one who said, what if their husbands fall in love with each other? That was her idea. Is that in arbitration, then? <laughs> the credits? <laughs> um, and then after that, it was a matter of... There were so many things I wanted to explore that fell into this category so well. Um, women and aging and what happens after a certain point in your life and the third chapter and hope. Mm -hmm. um, and it all seemed to be the perfect way to do it. When, uh, at what point in this process did the characters present themselves? Because it's interesting going in knowing who the actors are. It's so interesting. It, it was the relationship that presented mm -hmm. itself, not the characters as much. We were sitting with Jane and Lily one day. Are there any children in here? <laughs> Do you mind if we swear? No, they're in it. So we're sitting together, and Jane, who's had a very, very active past... Was talk, we were talking about Cialis and other penis medications. And she said, you know, there's also a pump that you can use, like a, a pump. And she said, there's, there's this cream. And there's also, she was taught how to give this certain kind of injection in the penis. And there's a beat. And Lily says, you have got to get younger boyfriends. <laughs> And we thought, there's, there, there's the relationship right there. That's it. That's it. Um, the characters just came out of what we wanted, what we knew they were good at, what we knew their strengths were, um, and to have a nice disparity between them to see them, to see how they could come together. But there's also, I would imagine, the, it would be very easy to make them the odd couple. You know, to make them sort of cartoonish. Uh, but what I think people are responding to in Grace and Frankie is that these are all very real characters. These are very real people. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, thank you. It, that, was, that was our goal. Yeah. And part of that, and it's part of the reason we, we did it at Netflix. Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't want Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin on their network? But part of the reason you can't do this kind of show on network is you don't get a full 30 minutes. You get 21 plus. So you have to do a one minute cold open, then you get six minute slots where you can tell your story. You can't tell a deep story that way. Yeah. You can only do the jokes and you know, get from A to B to C. But with all these new opportunities, you can do different kinds of shows. You, and it's not just being single camera. You can do single camera on network, but it's still not gonna dig deep. We wanted to do a show about real people in a real situation, both the comedy and the pain of it. And it had to be on some pay station. That makes a lot of sense. I would imagine 
when you make that decision, though, you have to have conversations about tone. And, you know, how, how hundreds jokey... Hundreds and hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of conversations about yeah, what tone. Are those, what were those conversations? You know, it was interesting. We wrote the first draft. The only note we got on the first draft from Netflix was lean into the drama. We wrote a second draft. Maybe we can go a little further in a couple of scenes. And we thought, okay, this is, this is where we're going to live. Somewhere around the third episode, they said, you can lean into the comedy a little more. <laughs> um, because they had to trust that our comedy would stay rooted and it wouldn't just be about the jokes. So once they were able to trust us and to know that you can do both comedy and drama in the same moment, then they sort of backed off that. And it's, it, look, we didn't get to do a pilot. Yeah. When you do Netflix, you go straight to 13. You don't get to make mistakes. So um, when you go straight to 13, you do your thing, and you have to learn the show begins to tell you what it is as it goes on. And then once it starts to do that, you, you can sort of ride the wave. Did, were you guys, and this is sort of a nerdy production question, but... I love nerdy production. Were, how many scripts were you in before production started? And were you able to go back and then, you know, adapt earlier stuff to what you guys eventually figured out the show was? We shot the first episode, had a two-day hiatus, actually, right after that, which was helpful for nothing. <laughs> um, and then, I guess by that point, we may have had four scripts, but we don't go back until the table read. Once we go to the table read, when you can hear it, because it changes. It changes at that point. Um, so we didn't do too many changes, except, you know, the, the notes that we got and addressing all of that. And doing, we still, It's still like our 27th draft by the time you get to the table, but then we waited. Once we had that production draft, we waited. Was Unless there... there was a production issue. Sure. I, I mean, you had been working in network TV for so many years. Uh, was there that instinct after the table read or even at any point to say, this isn't funny enough or this isn't punchy enough or, you know, to kind of lean into that networkness? No. No, there really wasn't. The only time that would happen is if a joke felt like, you don't, it shouldn't go, you shouldn't have a joke there or we need a joke there, it's just not funny enough. Um, but no, we never were like, oh my God, we have to go out on a laugh. There's no, we never did that. What did, uh, tell me about your room. You put together a killer room. I love my room. <laughs> are, you, are you a room person? Do you love being I in the, love the, the writer's room. room? I love the right. Look, you get to sit with really funny, really smart, completely insane people. <laughs> you know, for like 12 to 18 hours a day. It's fantastic. We have a room that ranges in age from 59 to 26. Um, we have, there are ten people in the room. Four of them are gay. One of them, I think, isn't sure, but we're waiting. Um, we have three parents, um, a number of people who are engaged, some who've had partners for a very, very long time, single. I mean, we have the complete gamut. And every, I like a room where everybody brings their own specific thing. As a room, we can improve, you know, we can add in the rest of it. 
But everybody has to bring something. They have to bring something to the table. Someone has to be good at story. Someone has to be good at the jokes. Someone has to be good at the, the realness of it. Are we, is this honest? Somebody has to be good at contemporary things that I'm just missing. Um, and it's the most, we do a lot together. Every Friday we go to my house at the beach and we work there. Um, we, we socialize. We're going to go do drag queen bingo and karaoke. I think most people assumed you were going to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, it's, I, I love the room. I love, love writers. I love them. Let me ask you this. Uh, I, I think, and I've heard this quite a bit, that, you know, the room is a team and everybody brings something to it. What do you think you bring to a writer's room? Food. That's the Hollywood Squares answer. What is the real answer? Um, <laughs> this is a hard one because when I was doing Friends, I wasn't sure of that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of why the first season was so difficult, it was my first thing that I was writing without David Crane. And I didn't know what I brought and discovered it. Um, and I think what I bring is heart. I think I bring a warmth. I think it is very important to me that my characters, they don't have to be lovable, but they have to be people you want to let into your home. I mean, we watch TV in our pajamas, and we're naked, and we're ironing, and we're folding towels, and we're cooking, and they're in our homes at the most intimate times. You have to want them there. And I think that's something I bring to it. And along with that heart, I also think I bring um, that tone. Mm -hmm. I feel like my life is always walking that dramatic, comedic line. And that you can just as, you can laugh, you can cry, probably if you didn't laugh, you would cry. Um, And then then discovering that it's really, really fun to make people cry. (laughs) That's that's really fun. I gotta say, that's, that's a blast. You know, it's a kind of like, ooh, that's almost as much fun as making them laugh. <laughs> what is your... It's an interesting thing. But I'm I mean, also... I, yeah. I'm a very strong leader, but I run a very democratic room. If this things are something. going in a bad direction, I, I, we have to... It's just no time. Yeah. Um, and I do... When things are going not in a good direction, I will quickly reel it back. Um, and I'm, I'm a strong voice in the room, but... I'm not the only voice in the room. There are, including me, 11 voices in that room, and everybody has to say their piece because everybody has their thing, and, and they bring it, and they have their thoughts, and you've got to hear them. I, I want to dig a little deeper on that because we've had uh, on the podcast Greenstein a number of times and Alexa, a, a lot of the Friends writers who talked about this democratic process where you know they were all 22 years old and had these voices on the first season of Friends, and, and on Dream On as well. Um, but I'm curious about applying that as a showrunner. How do you put your ego aside? How do you be... It's not about my ego. It's about, yeah. let's, what's the good show? Well, what's the best thing for these characters? That's easy to say, though. But, uh, you know, a lot of showrunners can't do that. Well, fuck that. <laughs> Correct answer. I hear stories. <laughs> I hear stories about that. I hear stories about that, and I find it... It, it breaks my heart. And I actually think you can tell in the shows. I think those shows tend to have a darkness or a meanness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can see it. I think right. um, 
And, and the democratic may be the wrong word. Highly collaborative, let's say. Highly collaborative, and the most passionate one wins. Mm -hmm. That's generally what happens. Someone who has the most passion and the, and, and the ability to articulate that usually wins. We uh, did a podcast recently where we convened a bunch of the first season Friends writers. <laughs> and I think it was uh, Greenstein was telling us a story about fighting for Paolo to be an Eskimo. Was that what it was? <laughs> These are the kind of arguments, though, that he was, he had all the passion in the world that this was the right choice. So how yeah. do you as the showrunner on, on any of the shows you've worked on start to... <laughs> put that passion away. Tell someone to put that passion away. Um, I think when people come up with, that I with ideas that are genuinely rotten, <laughs> um, I'm not going to be the only one going, mm -hmm. an Eskimo? <laughs> what are you, nuts? Um, there's going to be a bunch of people doing that. And that's, why, that's where it ha helps, that everybody has a voice. So I don't have to be the only one going, He's going to have a big fuzzy hat on. I don't want that guy. Um, that, what's sexy about an Eskimo? Uh, what, this is sort of a, a broad question about Grace and Frankie, but what did you learn from, again, years in network that you've brought to running this room and producing this show? Well, um, poof, there's so many things I learned. Um, I learned I can't do it alone. That, you know, a lot of... I, I somehow as a showrunner thought that it had to be all on my shoulders and have discovered the, the need to um, ask other people to, to create a vacuum so other people can step up. Um, <clears throat> we're getting into some deep stuff here. That's how we do it. Um, I guess the other thing I'm learning is it, it's a lot about actors and about actors' process. I mean, we always knew when we were doing Friends that everybody had their own process. But here now we're working with these four ridiculous professionals um, that have these enormous careers, and each one has a process that is theirs. And you have to respect that process when you're shooting. We know that after eight hours, Lily Tomlin gets tired. It's hard for her to remember lines at that point. She's not as, as invested at that point. We have to deal with that. So at eight hours, we have to then start shooting Jane and not Lily. We're going to have a long day with the two of them. Um, we learned Jane is really funny at the table read, but then she can overthink a joke. We've got to shoot her jokes first. We have to shoot them first. And this is what, you know, like you sit down and you talk to a director and say, here's what you need to, look, to know about these characters. Martin always wants to have the last line in a scene, whether it's written or not. So don't say cut yet. Well, he's used to being the president. He's used to being the president, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the husband's characters for a minute. Uh, they're phenomenal. I mean, this whole cast is ridiculous. The I kids, know, it's ridiculous, the husbands. Right? It, I mean... By the way, yeah. I, I can't just say this is ridiculous. Tracy, Tracy, Lillian Field, where are you? Stand up. 
You may not be able to see her when she stands up, but <laughs> she's tiny. She's tiny. This is our casting director. Oh, fantastic. Do you want some water? You can't have a great cast without a great casting director, so I have to start there. Um, well, and, and, I mean, this is not the first time you've gotten very lucky with having a great cast. And it's clearly, uh, you know, a testament to the talent of the casting director, but also to a script that draws this kind of talent. Absolutely. To a, stri- a script that draws this kind of talent, part of it is that they only have to do 13. Sure. You know, it's not... It's not um, Netflix is not as glamorous as HBO, mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't know how to find it, including my aunts. <laughs> no idea how to do it. None. I told them I'd send them DVDs. They don't have a DVD player. I'm going to have to perform it for them, the whole thing. Um, what was your... Oh, about the Yeah, men. but it, it, you're right. It doesn't have the kind of cachet that an HBO does. Um, it's hard to find. Uh, and you've got, you know, ant-aged actors here. They know what they were getting into. Not only do they know what they were getting into, and they all had their questions that, that we've answered, but here's the thing. These are four actors in their 70s who all have a job where they're not on the outside of it. Mm-hmm. It's their show. You know, they, they're there. They're the, these people work all week long. Um, it's, their, it's about them. It's not about the young people, and they just happen to be the parents. It's about the parents, and they happen to be young people. Um, and they are... And we've heard time and time again, especially from the men, they're so happy to be working. It's a shame that that is is the case, but it's uh, it's great that they found this Which reflects a kind of ageism that we're hoping this Mm -hmm. this has an effect on. When we did Friends, we were told by the network, no one's going to watch a show about people only in their 20s. You have to have an older person. (laughs) Like Pat the Cop. You know, <laughs> Coffee Joe. Uh, um, we said no. And we kept saying, if the stories are universal enough, you don't need it. So now we're on the opposite end. <laughs> and I think very few networks would have gotten behind it the way that Netflix has, because they understand that TV is now targeted. And that there are specific, not age audiences, but groups of people that we're looking for. And then you hope to open it out from there. But they, they're looking for groups that other networks aren't. They want an older audience. They want an LGBT audience. I want to talk about Pat the Cop for a minute. <laughs> of course, America's favorite lost character. Uh-huh. He's um, like Pete Best. Were there... <laughs> exactly. The sixth friend, uh, uh-huh. the seventh friend. Uh, was there an attempt to work in the... I mean, you guys were so green. You had done Dream On, but... We were so this young. Was, this was going to the big leagues. And I know when you make that jump, there is an attempt to, or want to, appease the people who are giving you the money to make this thing. Um, what we did instead was brought the parents in. Hmm. Because it felt more natural. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was the second episode we had parents in there. Oh, really? Um, I no, think it was. Early on. It was quite early, because he had to tell them about his divorce. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that was our what the way we decided to deal with the note. And this is what I always tell writers. You've got to hear the note somehow. 
You don't have to, you have to find out what the note is under the note. Um, you can't just, so we knew Pat the cop was never gonna fly. Um, but we also said, okay, we do, these characters do have parents. Bring them in. Let's have them around a little bit. That's interesting. What, uh, what kind of notes did you get? I mean, you had 10 years of this show. Okay. What kind I of notes I gotta give you my you favorite note. Please. I'm gonna give you my, I have two favorite notes. One was, <laughs> we had a script, it was supposed to be Rachel's birthday, and the very, very, very smart studio executive said, how will we know it's her birthday? <laughs> it's like, well, the balloons, the cake, people saying happy birthday. <laughs> so that was a good note. Um, the other note, which is my absolute favorite, we were doing the pilot, and the man who was the head of the network at the time, bit of a misogynist, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and he was having trouble with Monica sleeping with a guy on the first date. And he said, in a note session, after we had just done a a sort of dress rehearsal in front of an audience, she deserved what she got. At which point, fire came out of my nose. (laughs) Thank God for David Crane, who can do a hell of a tap dance. And he sort of, you know, pulled the guy away, and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) They literally, for the next dress rehearsal, handed out a questionnaire. And one of the questions was, for sleeping with a guy on the first date, do you think Monica is A, a slut, B, a whore, C, too easy, (laughs) D, none of the above? And it was all none, nobody cared, except this one guy. So... But as much as I hated, hated, hated that note, the note under the note, she needed to care more. If she cared more, you wouldn't think about it that way. If she already had some sort of investment in him, then, so, you know. (laughs) There's value to even that note. And I have to say, it ended up in a very funny thing, because we had a running misogyny issue. Um, And he was a little hurt by something I said once. So I sent him a basket of pantyhose, tampons, (laughs) lipstick, nail polish, like a big basket of girly things. And he sent me a Harley Davidson jacket. Very nice. Um, What... What were the particular, for you, uh, again, 10 years on a show, what were the particular challenges in the later years of Friends? Um, We had several challenges. One was it was getting really expensive. One was, when are we going to end this? This year? Next year? What? When? So we had several false um, uh, crash courses in how to end a series. Um, And the other hard thing, the hardest thing, 
you know, your show grows up over a period of time. And you, you have, the show really does tell you things. And you have to ride its wave. Our show is a show about a time in your life when your friends are your family. You have to be able to accept when it's over. And when it's over, in that show was when you start having a family of your own. It's different now. So the hardest thing is, is listening to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you guys were the rare show that it never felt like you were going to run out of story. I mean, these six characters could have told stories forever. There was enough, they were multifaceted, there were, the, the dynamics were right, and every time you thought that the end of a storyline was done, there was a fantastic turn. Um, but you got out at the right time. I mean, it makes sense that the show would end with, as you say, with them starting families, which is why, to me, the question of a friend's reunion is infuriating. Infuriating. Shut up about it. <laughs> it's enough already. <laughs> you got... Things end. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh... Listen, I want to make sure we have enough time. You guys all have questions for Marta? Or me, but... <laughs> you have questions, yes? Okay, uh, we'll, we'll make sure we get some of your questions, uh, and we'll kind of use those as jumping-off points for further conversation. Um, if you have heard the Nerdist Writers panel, then you know my rule about questions. Questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. I love that rule. That's the best rule ever. Uh, reunion questions are asked and answered. <laughs> um, what we're going to do is, if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will find you and call on you. Uh, I'm going to repeat the question because we are recording this for podcast. Uh, and then uh, Marta will answer your question. Yes, right there. Very eager. Please stand up for your question. What would Friends have been like as a single cam, and how would it have been different? How would you have written it differently? You know, sometimes... Things happen for a reason. We, um, we pitched quite a few places and originally thought it would be single cam. We were wrong. Were there, were there network single cams at the time? Yeah, not many. Yeah. I mean, there had been Buffalo Bill and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. The, it, it's, it's a show that didn't need to be outside. Mm -hmm. It was about the relationship between six people. We could do it in three apartments. Mm -hmm. um, so why... Why do it out there? So yes, it would have been different. It would have definitely been different. This was about living with them. You know, we as an audience were invited to live in, to, you know, be part of their lives. We didn't need to go outside and to parks all that often. So yeah. Uh, and, and it was like doing a little piece of theater once a week. I started in theater. That was really fun. Network TV and on top of that, multicam comedy has a lot of parameters, a lot of restrictions. Are you a writer who enjoys having those restrictions? Does that help you in your process? Um, yes and no. Um, we had just finished Dream On when we went to Friends, and one of the first things that happened is we couldn't say the word nipple. <laughs> you know, and after Dream On, when we were showing them, it was a little weird. Um, so we ended up using the word nipular. Um, got a big laugh, and I thought, all right, maybe there are ways around this that work. Um, but the bigger problem was when we got to 
um, at some point there was some very reactionary crap going on and we were doing an episode, this was during the V-chip debate, we were doing an episode where there was one condom left and the question was who's going to have, who's going to get to have sex that night? Um, we weren't allowed to show the foil. This is not long after the masturbation episode that Seinfeld did. <laughs> we had to use the box. Couldn't show the foil. And I ended up being, not long after, in a debate with uh, John McCain and Joe Lieberman. And Dick Wolf was on this panel, or a few other people. Which you also can't say on TV. Yeah. Uh, and Joe Lieberman was saying that, you know, his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter was watching, and, and this thing about the condom. And I said, well, you know, then turn it off, or check your TV, gu TV guide then. Check your TV <laughs> guide before you pick a show. I said, but, but, and he called it irresponsible. And I said, wait a minute. How is it irresponsible? They are arguing over, they're in their 20s, they're sexual beings, and they're being hyper-responsible by saying one of us is not having sex tonight. How is that a bad thing? Um, that was a tough thing about network. When, when we did the, the gay wedding, um, they put on 125 operators at NBC. <laughs> the only thing that happened that one town refused to carry it. I think it was in Texas, guys. <laughs> um, they got four phone calls that night, a lot of board operators, and about two months later, we got about 40 or 50 letters, all from one organization, um, and they were people who clearly hadn't seen it. This, it sort of it raises an interesting question to me. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how friends change TV. And, you know, you said that people didn't want to watch people in their 20s, and now how I think Grace and Frankie is going to change things that we're getting to see in older, older leads. Um, it's a less a question about the responsibility, but what do you see as the role of a TV show? I mean, it's not just entertainment. We do live with these characters. It's just entertainment. However, it is just... My, my goal is not to teach you anything. Mm -hmm. My goal is to have you have an experience and maybe open up your heart to something. It has to come out of the showrunner's humanity. And this is where I think it connects back to the room. I believe to have a truly great show... A showrunner needs humanity. The writer's room needs humanity because it is that humanity that is translated to the characters. That is my sole responsibility. So that looking at people in their 70s, I'm not making fun of them. I'm connecting to them. You know, the, one of the things that has gotten the most response is when they talk about dry vaginas. I swear. <laughs> There's a whole episode about dry vaginas. <laughs> and I have gotten more comments on that. People saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We, we don't talk about the real stuff. 
when you're of postmenopausal women. Mm-hmm. So my responsibility isn't to teach anybody about dry vaginas. My my responsibility is to say, those of you with dry vaginas, we're with you. <laughs> Which is the original slogan for the show. That's I right. Believe. That is right. All right. Other questions? Yeah, it's right here. What's the key to creating great characters? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, you start with a broad um, outline of a character, you have the skeleton. And little by little, you add some details. You add the hair, you add the fingernail, you know, you sort of, you, you finish the, the exterior portrait. And then you find the actor that breathes life into the core of what you were going for. You don't do it alone. The characters change always once you bring an actor in. And you have to be open to that and see how they elevate it. So I think that's a big part of it. Right, Tracy? There, there's something too, and, and whether it's about character or whether it's about story, uh, but both in Friends and Grey's and Frankie and everything we've seen from you, there's an emotional honesty. And that's really hard to get on the page. And this is a deep process question, but how do you accomplish that? What is your process when actually writing a script? Well, um, in a way, there are two different questions. My process in writing a script is I ride the waves. Mm. Um, I, I have learned I can't just say, here, two hours, sit down and write, because I write in bursts. That's how I do it when I'm alone. I have a burst. I can feel the burst is over. I have to walk away, do something completely different, and free up the next level. Then I go back and I read it and I move on. And sometimes it'll last two hours and sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes I get to the end of a scene and know I have to stop. Mm -hmm. In terms of the reality of it, um, I was saying this morning, before I became a writer, I was an actor. And I would tell every writer, take an acting class. Because you have to, as a writer, do it. You have to walk through it. And you have to say, I've just said this. She just said that to me. How does that feel? How does that feel when someone says that? What, what do I want to do? And then, okay, this is what I want to do, but should I cover that? So it's this, you have to walk through, and you have to walk through each character. You can't just walk through the one who the scene's about, because you have to make both arguments viable. Yeah, that's great advice. Other questions? Yes, right here. How, I think the, the kind of broader question here is how did, how did the relationships evolve, and was it a discovery process for you yes. and the writers? Well, we knew from the beginning that there would be a codependent relationship between Saul and Frankie. That we knew. Mm-hmm. We completely knew that. Um, we didn't. We knew something else that we decided we didn't, wanted to unknow. Um, so we sort of dropped that mm-hmm. pretty early. Um, but it evolves. It evolves once you really get a feeling for the chemistry between the actors. And oh my God, you put this screen, put this person on screen with that person. That's fun. You know, we didn't know what fun Brianna and Frankie would be, or Brianna and Bud. We didn't know that Bud and Coyote. <laughs> can have some real, we can really have fun with them. There's a lot we didn't know um, because we didn't do a pilot. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn it and figure it out and then jump on it. 
Um, so it will, in some ways, it makes second season easier. And then we'll hopefully have new discoveries. I will say, this is the kind of question I don't allow because it's not a question, but man, the scenes between, they are few and far between, and they are brief, but the scenes between June Diane Raphael and Ethan Embry kill me every time. <laughs> they, those guys have a chemistry that I is know. just so silly. When she says to him at one point, will you talk slow? I thought you were stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I love her. I love her so much. Uh, I- I'm going. I'm going to change this except question. Except the show, the show wouldn't have worked. Right. I'm. <laughs> the show tells you what to do. I do want to ask this question based on that question. Um, writing towards audience expectations, uh, giving the audience what they think they want versus what they should get. Uh, you can't can write towards an audience expectation. That's no way to write. I don't read reviews. I don't read. Um, I don't. I don't look at what people are saying. I mean, it's very different now because there's so many ways to hear what people have to say, and mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of it's mean and a bunch of it isn't. So I'm not going to buy any of it. I'm just not going to read any of it. The only thing I have to go on is I want to make a show I would like, mm-hmm. and I bring in a group of people who have the same taste as I do. Bring in, you know, your your heads of departments and your writers and your producers and your casting department and your crew. We're all on the same boat. We're all doing this one vision. Um, Audience expectation, the only time it comes into play um, on the finale of Friends, we knew we had to get Ross and... My rabbi used to stop me in in the parking lot when I was dropping my kids off and say, when are you going to get them together? We knew we had to keep them apart because that's more fun dramatically. Um, And we also knew that by the end of the series, we had to get them together. Our job was, all right, the audience expects it. How can we do it so it's it's, the journey is fun? That's where you, you know. Absolutely. Yes, right here. Of all the characters you've written, who are your favorites and why? You realize that's like saying who are your favorite children? Oh, also who are your favorite children? <laughs> they don't have to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, that's really, that's so tough. Um, I, you know what's tough about it is it's hard for me at this point to separate which are my characters and which are the actors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, I, having written them, they become something else. Um, and I loved all the characters. I guess the one that, that was maybe the clearest for me was, was Dream On, was uh, mm. Martin Tupper, because we didn't know what we were doing, so... <laughs> Are there, were there characters over the years that were particularly challenging for you personally to wrap your head around? Oh, hundreds of them. Yeah. Um, John Favreau and Friends, I never, I never quite hmm. linked in with that. Um, it was more people who came in from the outside, because that, that was a tough group to break into. And part of the reason the Monas don't work is because this was a show where everything I learned about writing drama didn't work. <laughs> you don't want to see the drama. You want to hear the friends talk about it. That's 
So it was very difficult for an outside character to come in and be welcome and feel welcomed and feel like they were part of something except for um, family members. Mm -hmm. It was okay with sisters and parents and, and that stuff. Um, but to bring in someone that we were supposed to love, hmm. it was yeah, hard. it's really hard. It's really hard. Uh, we have time for a couple more, yeah. What, what are the most important elements to creating a successful show? Great characters. Interesting story. Pretty words. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, there is no... I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there... And I think it's a mistake that a lot of people make is to think that, oh, Friends was successful. Let's do another show with a bunch of young people. It doesn't work that way. Um, and truthfully, the only thing I can say is you need to be struck by lightning. It's, it's one of those, the stars are aligned right now, and, and you got in at the right time with what people seem to need, even if they didn't know it. You know, I, it's, it's a, so much of it is, is magic. I will say, and, and you've touched on this a number of times, that it, it feels to me like the formula is writing something you care about. I've always said you can't write something that someone else wants you to write. You have to write what's in your heart. Anything that we did that was terrible was because someone said, hey, would you guys write something about... And we go, okay. <laughs> and then it never works. Yeah, were there... Uh, Post-Friends, were there wrong roads? Were there temptations to go do, you know, something that you didn't care about? You know, I, right after Friends, I was going to take some time off, and, and Peter Roth, who's the head of Warner Brothers, asked me to run a show that a woman wrote that she'd never done TV before. Um, and I said I would do it, and it was not good. It was not a good idea. I mean, I met some amazing actors and an amazing director and had a good time, but I wasn't proud of it. And then I went and did a documentary. And I found that very liberating to learn to tell a story in a new way. And after the documentary, I wrote three seven-minute films for a YouTube channel and got to, I directed them, and that was, again, a new way to tell a story. Then I did five short films about breast cancer and five short films about mental illness, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's, there are all these ways to tell a story, and I'm beginning to realize that what I want to tell has a little, has something a little deeper to it, but it's always going to have comedy. And then I could, we, we went out with four projects this year and sold last year, two years ago, and sold all of them. Sure. So. That's amazing. Uh, all right, Lucky. we have time for one more, and I want to get someone way in the back. Who is the furthest back? I think, I think it is you right here in the sunglasses who is looking around. Stand up. Nah. <laughs> Isn't that the best vase ever? <laughs> I love that vase so much, and our, our production designer's mother made it. Oh my God. I kid you not. She like does vagina painting. She's Frankie. She's Frankie. Isn't that the best thing ever? You know, that's, that's so much fun to do with, with your production team. It is so much fun to create the world. And because Lily loves to work from the outside in, it helped her a great deal to get a sense of where she lived and what are the things that are around her. Um, and, you know, it's it's a... It's a tricky road sometimes because in Grace's house, we always felt it was Robert's. 
that he decorated it, not her. Um, so we really had to think about the three different spaces and that the beach house is defined by both women. And what? Oh, the Ryan Gosling chair? Yes. <laughs> I love that chair. It is, what is... What is amazing about that is there is emotional depth attached to the Ryan Gosling chair. And, by the way, they sold out. Oh, my God. I couldn't even get one. I was like, I want, I want me a Ryan Gosling chair. And they're like, no, they're gone. They were gone. They sold out. You're welcome. Uh, we'll, we'll finish, as we always do, by asking you, what are you watching on television these days? What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, your writer's room? Uh, your friends? Um, I don't watch comedy. That's fine. I don't watch comedy. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> I love... You know, I was a, a... I like Game of Thrones. I like Homeland. I like the killing. I mean, seriously. Um, I like violence. But I like really intricate, dramatic scandal. Oh, my God. <laughs> Right? I mean, I just want to sit there with a fat glass of wine and, 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 and watch those amazing people. Um, I just, I love that stuff. I don't watch any comedy. Yeah. No, it's, it often feels like work for comedy does, writers. Yeah. I hear that quite a bit. Um, you know what? Since you answered that so quickly, I do want to ask you this. Because okay. who knows if I'll get another chance. Um, I may be asked to leave the festival immediately. <laughs> um, I'm going with you if that yeah, happens. Let's go. We'll go two-stepping and then out of here. <laughs> uh, what is your awareness of the impact of Friends? <clears throat> My wife somehow missed the 90s and <laughs> had never seen the show. And we watched all ten seasons last year. I'm so sorry. No, it's fantastic. And she said, oh, my God, now I know why all you guys are talking that way. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I mean, really this funny. is not just a cultural, a, a television impact. This is a cultural impact. Uh, does that, is that exciting to you? Does that weigh on you? And are you even aware of this? You know, we used to talk about when, when Friends was first taking off, and I remember walking through an airport, and every one of them was on a magazine cover. Um, and I was coming back to go to work. It, we, I, I think it's very rare unless you're Aaron Sorkin and have a huge public personality, to feel part of that. Mm -hmm. For me, it was my favorite job of all times at that point. It was, um, I, I got to work with my best friend, and, and it was such an exciting, fulfilling, creative experience. And I don't experience any of the rest of it, except that my youngest daughter's friends are finally seeing it sure. and that blows my mind <laughs> you know we were in the hotel room last night and friends was on it's like every once in a while it kind of that it's still around is is an incredible um honor it's an incredible honor but um i i can't take responsibility for that because it was like 250 people yeah. who made that happen yeah. marta kaufman everybody Now leaving Nerdist.com.